Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, welcome and thanks for being here. For those of you online, there are people in the room. I know you can't hear them, but they're here. No, thank you for being here. Uh, these are crazy times, and who knows what it all is, but here you are, and thank you, and thank you for joining us online. And, and we're thinking about attitude, and uh, specifically that attitude matters, and it seems to me that we need an attitude adjustment. Not you people, because you're all really nice, <laughs> but some other people that we all know, Amen. Wow, so I can't even get you to get excited about talking down other people. I don't know. I grew up with an understanding with my parents. They had a phrase they used with us kids. It's pretty simple. Things weren't going right. They would say, somebody needs an attitude adjustment. Anybody else's parents use that phraseology with you? Somebody needs an attitude adjustment. Generally, these attitude adjustments weren't a long, drawn-out ordeal. They didn't involve a lot of reasoning or lecturing. There weren't a bullet point presentation, no PowerPoints, none of that. My parents took more of a hands-on approach to attitude adjusting. I understand what I'm saying? You understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. And you could get adjusted for a number of things. I mean, there were pretty simple rules to follow and guidelines, you know, to kind of get up to. But, but you could get adjusted if you didn't have a respect for authority. Like, like there were rules and there were people that enforced the rules and kept the rules. And if you didn't respect the rules or the people, you would get adjusted. It was pretty straightforward. It didn't matter if my parents agreed with the rules or not. There was a respect for authority, and if you didn't have it, you got adjusted. Not, not saying it was good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying it was. It's what it was. And I knew as a kid that if I didn't... Re- so I was always careful. You always worded things very carefully when you were, you know, maligning the teacher or the school system or, you know, the pastor... Second thing that would get you was respect for others. I mean, if you disrespected anybody, another parent, a teacher. I'm old enough to remember that when I was a kid, we'd roll up in the gas station. Remember this? And they'd all come out to work on them. I mean, somebody was putting gas in the car, and they were washing the window, they were checking the oil, they were checking the tires. And at the end, they came and gave us balloons and suckers. I mean, we got candy and balloons at the store. If you disrespected any of those people, you were going to get adjusted. It didn't really matter. Neighbor kids, people down the street, if you disrespected people, you would get an adjustment. And then if you disrespected yourself, you would get an adjustment. And this was really controversial because my parents would always say, this is for your own good. And I would always be like, uh... I think I should be able to disrespect myself and get away with it. Like, you understand disrespect yourself? Things like, if you didn't tell the truth, 
If you said you washed something that you didn't wash, you know, if you didn't keep up with your responsibilities. My, my growing up years were highly organized. I understood what days represented what. Anybody else grow up like that? Saturday morning was clean the house day. Anybody else have Saturday morning clean the house day? You knew what to do as a kid. You got out of bed and you stripped your bed and you took all your dirty laundry to the laundry room. Failure to do so was a lack of respect for yourself and others and authority. And you could get adjusted if you didn't, because it's for our own good. They teach us to respect ourselves. Do what you say, keep up with yourself, take care of your responsibilities. That's respecting yourself. That's respecting others. It seems to me that maybe we live in a culture that could use a little attitude adjustment. Yes. Not us, but some other people. And maybe some of those ideas are kind of archaic and we do them differently now, and I get that. I'm, I'm now, you know, a grandfather, and I don't think my grandchildren really need adjustment. They just need more me time. Yeah. Amen? I mean, what's wrong with those children? They haven't been with me enough. I haven't taken them for a donut lately, so that's the real problem. Jesus, knowing that you and I would need attitude adjustments along the way, and knowing that our attention span is very, very brief, he was always distilling the teaching down to something very manageable. So he said things like this. Well, here's what sums it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the, all of the law and the prophets. On this point, all of the law and the prophets turn on this one thing. And then what do we do? I mean, immediately, what do we do? We're like, okay, so you took all of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, all of it, and you distilled it down, and you just told us, love God and love others. And we said, uh, could you clarify? It's, have you read the Bible? It's exactly what happens. See that Old Testament? See all that? The Midrash, all that commentary, all these years? Let me sum it up. Love God, love each other. Excuse me. I don't get it. So he continues. Then listen to this, because he knows how short our attention span is. He distills it even further, Matthew 7, 12. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So I, I like sometimes people say, is a golden rule in the Bible? Not only is it in the Bible, <laughs> it actually says it sums up all the law and the prophets. So here's a great, we're going to come back to this over and over in this series. I hope I at least mention it every single Sunday in these seven weeks as we talk about and think about attitude and why it matters. I wonder how much could be different, how much could be better if we simply said this distillation from all of the things that the Scripture teaches us down to love God and love each other, down to, hey, treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's a pretty easy test, isn't it? I mean, we don't have to go, I don't get it. I'm not sure what it means. I'll have to consult the Greek. No, you really don't. <laughs> if I'm standing in my house and I'm saying words about another human being, and I say to myself, I wonder if they're at their house saying such words about me. I don't think I'd like that. Then stop. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How about this? We should all write a letter to Washington today. Wow. Because <laughs> everybody in the room went, yeah, I ain't doing that. That ain't going to do a bit of good. 
But wouldn't it be awesome if we had leaders that said, hey, I'm not going to speak of other people in ways that I don't want to be spoken about. I'm not going to regard the opinion of other people's in a way that's disrespectful because I don't want to be treated that way. I'm not going to talk about them like that because I don't want them to talk about me like that. I'm not going to be unfair in my assessment of others and perspectives that are not my own and that I don't agree with because I don't want people to treat me that way. I'm not going to talk that way to my children because I don't want my children to talk that way to me. I'm not going to act like that with my friends because I don't want them to act like that with me. I'm going to be better. I'm going to take initiative. Because it seems like when you talk about adjusting an attitude, this is pretty simple. And it could be transformational. I mean, I've been living with this for a few weeks. It turns out this is kind of hard. Because it'll catch you. Because it's not complicated. And about the time you start to have an attitude, then you'll go, oh, I guess I'm supposed to treat other people the way I want them to treat me. I want them to treat me. And that adjusts everything. These next few weeks, we're going to take this study from the book of Galatians. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the letter. or I think sometimes when we get into the New Testament, we know Paul wrote all these letters, and we're just like, oh, there's another one. I don't know. Uh. The book of Galatians is probably one of the more raw we probably see more of the raw personality of Paul in the writing. He's, he's exposed in it. He's responding to criticism. He's responding to a church that has uh, become divided. He's been accused of a lot of things. And so in a moment, we're going to just read his opening. And, uh, and you'll see immediately he's emotional, he's sarcastic, he's angry. He's, he's got some things to say. You know, and so it becomes a really fascinating letter in its rawness. So let me tell you what's going on in Galatia that has prompted him to write the letter. If you just step back to get a macro view of the story of the New Testament, then, then here's what happens. Uh, the, the disciples, all Jews, have become followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. They are empowered with the Holy Spirit. And they begin now to live out this new life in Christ. This is mostly centered at the beginning in Jerusalem and the scattered believers who have been around as Jesus has traveled around Israel. But they continue to live in their Judaism. And so if you read the book of Acts, you know, you'll find that a lot of the early miracles in Acts happen as they're on their way to the temple or they're on their way from the temple or they happen in the temple courts because the disciples are continuing to practice all of the pieces of Judaism. That goes on until this person, Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus, is confronted on the road to Damascus and gives up his Judaism in favor of his Christianity. Am I, am I oversimplifying? <laughs> That's what happens. And then he immediately decides it is his mission to go to the Gentiles. So now Paul is out there preaching to the Gentiles. Just nobody told him to. Nobody authorized him to. Nobody gave their approval. It didn't go through committee. You with me? This is the macro story of the New Testament. You can read it for yourself. 
So he's out there winning Gentiles to Jesus, and the church back in Jerusalem is trying to figure out what that means. And so they're having meetings going, how Jewish do you have to be in order to be Christian? And it turns out they're undecided. They're really undecided. Now, Peter will take on a role in which he represents the need that you need to be pretty Jewish to be Christian. And Paul will confront him. In fact, in this letter, there's a confrontation. He'll call him out, actually. <laughs> Gets kind of, you know, in his face. And we see this push and pull going on as Paul builds churches that are Gentile-based. And over in Jerusalem, they're going, well, I don't know what this means. So now... People from Jerusalem start to visit the churches that Paul has planted. They're called Judaizers in Paul's writings. And so they come and they want to say, listen, we're over here still trying to decide how Jewish you need to be. And depending on which group of people have come from Jerusalem, some of them say you have to be really, really, really Jewish. And some of them are saying you don't have to be that Jewish, but a little Jewish. They realize very early that if they're going to influence these churches where Paul has planted and shared the gospel, they're going to have to discredit Paul because those people look up to Paul and they're not really listening. And so they begin to discredit Paul. And so Paul ends up defending himself often and his letters are often written to go, hey, they said all this stuff about me, but it's not really true. And if you stop and think about it, blah, 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 blah. So that's what's going on. This push and pull goes on until Peter has a vision at the home of Simon the Tanner and he's called to go preach You get where I'm going? Peter, the leader of the Judaizers in Jerusalem, has a vision in which God says, do not call unclean what God has called clean. And he he goes preaches his own sermon to the first group of Gentiles. Revolutionary change in the church. Suddenly, Peter says, I am convinced that now God is no respecter of persons, but he loves all people equally. (laughs) It's a breakthrough. We're in the middle of that conflict in Galatia. Paul has come, he's planted the church, he's given them a gospel of grace, and Judaizers have come and discredited Paul. He's not about pleasing God, he's not preaching the gospel, he's preaching something else, he's watering it down, and Paul is now responding to that. And that's what's going on in the letter. Other than the greeting, which we're skipping, (laughs) and here's why. Because Paul has a stylized Greek greeting. It's great. It follows a pattern. I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, write to you at Galatia. It's a formalized, it's a, it is an official Greek greeting. It follows all of the patterns, except he changes the language to highly Christianize it, particularly as he talks about being a servant of God. Are we with me? So understand this. Paul is arguing this idea. He's arguing the idea that you and I need something upon which to base our lives. Who do you trust? If I were to just ask you, as you think about your life, as you think about the core of how you function in the world, what is it that is the gyroscope? What do you trust in your inner being to give you guidance? I think when you ask that question, most of us go, well, It probably takes on a name or a face. We probably personalize that conversation in some way. Who do I trust? Who do I listen to? What is my source of information? But Paul is sort of pushing past that. He's asking a bigger question. In fact, Jesus did the same thing. The question would be then, 
what is the philosophy upon which you trust your life? What, what do you believe about life, about the world, about who God is, about who you are in it? What is your, because Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. But if you hear these words and you don't put them into practice, you're like a foolish person that builds their house on sand. And one of the reasons we struggle with attitude in our culture is because we're building on sand a lot in our culture. Amen? In fact, I am the most upset, and when I analyze why I'm the most upset, it is almost always that I am building something on sand and not solid ground. I'm paying attention to something that is secondary in importance, that doesn't have all of the merit and favor and ideal of the kingdom of God. And when I get on that sinking sand, guess what? I get insecure. Just me? And when I get insecure and somebody calls me out, guess what I have? A bad attitude. Amen? I have a bad attitude. I don't know how to explain it all. So I just start throwing stuff at people. Well, Paul is writing a letter to say, listen, what do you believe? What do you really believe about the world and about God in it? Paul's asking the people to build their life on a foundational level of relationship, and that relationship is a relationship of grace. When, when you read the Scripture, you come face-to-face with foundation, a relational foundation right away. When you open and you start into the book of Genesis, immediately God is plural. The, the name for God is plural. And so, you know, when you get inside all of that, obviously it is the belief in the multifaceted nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not all been revealed yet, but it gets revealed as the Scripture unfolds. We come to understand that the biblical view of God is the triune God, the Trinity. And if that's sort of hazy to us, John in chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, He was with God. Nothing was created without Him. So we know that the nature of God in the beginning is relational. And then we're introduced to this message of God that's completely relational. It's always relational. It's always God speaking into the lives of people and those people speaking in the lives of other people. It's always about community. It's about faith. It's about joining together. And as the gospel unfolds, we find out that there's this high value on the diversity of relationship of God's people. It turns out that the biblical view of humanity is that we need each other. That we were created to be in healthy relationship with one another. Who knew that we need it? Most of you came in a group today. Most of you feel better in a group. Isn't it weird to go somewhere by yourself, especially a strange place? Yet if you just have one other person to connect to, you feel much, much better. That's deeply wound into us. And then the scripture has this super optimistic view of human beings saying, hey, you ought to celebrate your diversity. You're not all alike. Way to go. You weren't created to be alike. You were created for synergy. You don't sing unison, you sing harmony. 
Stop trying to get everybody to sing unison. They don't see what you see. They don't think what you think. They don't like what you like. You're different. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord who is Father of all and over us all and in us all. So we love each other. We love each other. And there's just children of God who have accepted and received the grace of God and children of God who need to accept and receive the grace of God. Amen? So this relational picture in the Scripture begins to be, you were made to know and be known. You were made to love and be loved. You were created. You're not okay without it. You're not okay. But... You cannot rely on human relationships to give you perfect relationship. Because people are flawed. Every human being is flawed. All of us are flawed. So when we get disappointed in people because, hey, we need to be together. We need to connect. We need to talk. We need to communicate. We need to love each other. We need to be there for each other. But we're going to be imperfect at that. Even that is an expression of grace. I don't expect you to be perfect. I'm going to try to love you the way I want to be loved. I'm going to try to care for you the way I want to be cared for. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to practice grace. But because these relationships are flawed, the Scripture understands this. There better be an influx. There better be an outpouring of grace in our lives so that we have some source of grace. And Paul's argument in the book of Galatians is simply this. Here's your source of grace, God. You better get a lot of grace from God so that then you can go share grace with others. Because if this thing right here, your reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ as an expression of the grace of a loving God gets messed up, then you're not going to be able to function well in the brokenness of human relationships where every single person needs grace all the time, unmerited favor, being treated better than they deserve. Amen? And it just seems to me that that's a part of the attitude problem we're having in our culture and in our world. We expect people to get it fixed and get it right and straighten it out. And we're disappointed when they don't and we're angry and we're mad. We're mad with the imperfect systems and we're mad with the imperfect people that run the systems. And when we base our lives on that stuff, guess what happens? We get a bad attitude. And Paul says, that's not where you base your life. You base your life on the grace of God. Now he's all worked up. And he's writing them a letter because somebody's trying to tell them to base their life on something besides the grace of God. Everybody ready to read the letter now? Woo! So excited. Verse 6, chapter 1. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Listen, that is a quick start to a letter. I, Paul, write to you, servant of Jesus Christ, to those believers in Galatia, we love you. I'm astonished. 
I can't believe that you are turning to a gospel, deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel uh, other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, and so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I'd not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was it taught me. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, how I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem, and I got acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That is a mouthful. (laughs) So he says, listen, I'm not sure what's going on over there. But point number one, you must live in the grace of Christ. You must live in the grace of Christ. And I wonder how many of us, and if you just want me to break this down, verses 6 and 7, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You and I are called, this is the foundation point, God loves you. God loves you. You cannot get him to unlove you. Wow, that's such good news, Dave, thanks. I feel so warm right now. It's just getting inside me. Mm. Come on now. You know you have self-doubt. You know you worry. You know you question your own worth. Question your own holiness. Are you good enough? Did you get it right? Did you fail again? Did you do it again? Did you say it again? Did your attitude crater again? Oh, I feel pretty good. I think God's going to hear my prayers better today. I I didn't do, I've been asleep all day, but I haven't offended anyone all day. We do this all the time. And Paul says, listen, you got to live the gospel of grace. God loves you, not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because he loves you. That he so loved you, you cannot pervert this gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is nothing you could do that would ever cause the good shepherd to not look for you. 
Nothing you could ever do in your story, in your life, that would make you become unloved by the Father. You live in grace. I live in grace. He does not treat us as we deserve. He treats us far better. By the sacrifice of His Son, it's complicated. It's not simple. The grace isn't cheap. It came at a price. But He so loved that He gave His Son to bridge the gap so that He could freely pour out His love on you and His grace on you and His forgiveness on you and His forgiveness on me. And when you get inside the story of God, it was God tabernacle in human flesh that made the sacrifice to reconcile us to God. Who's going to pay the price? God Himself. You matter that much. He loves you that much. He pours that kind of grace on you and on me over and over and over and over and over and over. I grew up as a guilty child. Probably all of that attitude adjusting that did it. But I found myself as a young kid, and I don't know that I've ever gotten over it, that if I did something wrong, I had to go confess it. I was not good at, you know going underground. So I don't know what kind of terrible travesties I was committing at six and seven and eight years old, but, you know, kid stuff. But I'd have to go confess to my mom. I mean, I'd pray. You know, they'd tell me at church, just pray, Jesus will forgive you. But until my mom forgave me, it didn't mean anything to me. You understand? I didn't get down in here yet. <laughs> So I'd go to my mom. I can't tell you how many times in my journey. I'd go, oh, I'm going to have to tell my mom I did that. <laughs> you know, you go see your mom, heart beating 900 miles an hour. Mom, I lied. <laughs> I don't know what I did, but I did something. You know what my mom would always say? I forgive you. I don't think I ever confessed anything to my mom that she did not treat me with grace. And I sometimes made her mad as I got older. You know, it wasn't always just harmless little pranks. She always met me with grace, always. And you know what that made me do? Feel safe. So the next time something went wrong, I felt confident that I could come back and say, you know what, I, I messed up again. That's what God wants for you. A safe place where you bring it all and you just dump it out. And he says, okay, I got you. In fact, just so you know, when you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Not only will I forgive you, I'll wash it away. I won't look at you the same tomorrow. I won't look at you in the next time. You'll be my child, washed clean, pure, new creation. It's all gone. It's buried in the sea of my forgetfulness. <laughs> what a gift. An omniscient, all-knowing God who chooses to forget my failures, chooses to forget my weaknesses, chooses to forget my weirdness, chooses to forget. It is a gospel of grace. And if you can't build your life on anything else, build it on grace. Grace Grace, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Number two, there is no other gospel. Verses eight and nine. I don't care if an angel steps out from heaven and preaches you another gospel. If it's not a gospel of grace, it's not the gospel. Understand who's saying these words? 
the chief of structure and analysis, Paul, the Pharisee, who lived in all the human structure of legalism and excelled at it and thought that was the way to live. That was what you believe in. That's what you base your life in. And that system of legalism was used to beat down, to hold in shame, to place in the yoke of slavery human beings so that when Jesus came with a gospel of grace and he began to reach out to people who were broken and messy, he said, I didn't come to call the well. They're self-righteous. I can't help them. They have all of the gospel they need in the structure of their human system. I'm offering you a gospel of grace to people who know they're sick and need help. Amen? And even if an angel from heaven were to preach to you another gospel, it is no gospel at all. Don't yoke yourself up in that legalism and slavery again. Because I'm going to tell you, if you cannot receive the grace of God, if you cannot base your life on the grace of God, you cannot spill that grace on other people. And people need grace. They need grace. Number three, there's no other source of true grace. No other source of true grace. Verses 11 through 16. I didn't get this from any other human. I got it straight from the revelation of God. I didn't find it on my own. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't do research. I wasn't hoping for it. I wasn't praying for it. I didn't finagle it. I didn't do tricks with the Greek language or the Hebrew language to figure it out. I was on a horse practicing my very human legalism structures when the God of heaven knocked me off my horse and Jesus Christ appeared to me and said, why do you persecute me? And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus Christ, who you persecute. You better get it together. Paul said, from that moment on, and I got up, and I couldn't see, and I went over to Damascus, and they they called this guy to come and lay his hands, and scales fell from my eyes, and I could see, I was blind. You get all the beautiful metaphor of this? I was blind, and then I could see. The guy was scared to death. He was shaking when he put my hands on me, because he knew I killed people, and now he's praying the gospel of grace over me, grace, me who killed people in the name of the church. And I got up from there, and I went to Arabia, and I started preaching the gospel to a bunch of people, because once the grace gets in you, it's got to get out of you. It's got to get out of you. In a few weeks, I'll, I'll share a quote with you from Philip Yancey. He says, I left the church because of a lack of grace. I came back because I could find it no other place. And as imperfect as this thing called church is, we are the only people who have a gospel that inspires and empowers and enables us to live in grace. We ought to do it. We ought to do it. Number four, then we go grace others. Then we go grace others. Paul gets the message of grace, and what does he do? He doesn't consult anybody. He just starts sharing it. That ought to happen to us. Today, when you go out of this place, as we think about these next seven weeks, we're going to be in this book for seven weeks. We're going to take it from start to finish. It's a powerful, beautiful book. In fact, I don't know if you know this, this is the book that inspired the Reformation. This is Luther's book. This is the book that he 
lived with and studied. This in the book of Romans. It becomes, the, it's called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It, it's a beautiful, powerful letter. But it's hard as this. We're going to live an attitude that is in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, attitude matters. We're going to have to build on a relational foundation. And that relational foundation is not me and you. It's not you and the people that surround you. It's not you and the people who think like you and are of the same political persuasion as you. It is a relationship on the foundation of the grace of a loving God. And once that grace gets in us, then we share it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. God, as we close, there's some things we ought to confess to you. In fact, we're going to sing these words that sort of capture what we're talking about. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart bless your name. And so as we open this new series in a brand new year, we want to change. We want to be different. We know that, that the culture is divisive and that there's a million more things this year to argue about than there were last year. We thought we'd be over it by now, but it turns out there are just more anger, more distrust, more issues, more problems. Who knew human beings would do such things? May we be different. May we as individuals who will walk out of this place practice a grace in our world and in our culture. Not because we're good, but because we received grace from you. You poured it into us and we want to pour it out. And may it be more than just as individuals. May this place be a place of grace. A home of grace. A place where broken hurting people from all different walks of life could walk in and know that we're going to love them. We're going to give them grace. The Holy Spirit's going to speak in their lives and lead them and guide them, and we're going to get out of the way and invite you. We're always going to lean into the Holy Spirit and ask you to speak and lead and be the power that both convicts and transforms and empowers lives. But we're going to be a place of grace. We're going to live in this foundational reality that God so loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were lost sheep, you came looking for us. And you gave us grace upon grace upon grace. It is a gospel of grace from beginning to end, Paul says. May we receive it. Some in this place that need forgiveness right now need grace. Hear their confessions. Wrap them up in your arms. Welcome them. Take the burden of guilt and shame off their shoulders. Empower real change and real transformation. And then as we go out of this place, let us practice grace and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Hear these words as we do our work with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.